it's time to eat. The people are hungry. But where in the world will they find enough food? The tour bus full of pilgrims has just pulled up at what is already before lunch their third holy site for the day. They're tired and weary, and they've lost some of that eagerness, some of that we-want-to-walk-where-Jesus-walked enthusiasm has worn off. And now they're thinking maybe they'd like to just sit where Jesus sat, or sit where anybody has sat, for that matter. Um, And to make things worse, they're getting hungry. They've arrived at what they thought was just in time for lunch at this site. So they, they check their guidebooks of the Holy Land for that little symbol on the map directing them to the, the gift shop or maybe even a cafe, definitely something that would have a few snacks. Um, maybe the authentic trail mix of the disciples would be there or something. But when they look up from their guidebooks and, and follow their gaze to where that gift shop should be, to their horror... Only the charred remains are there. Not only of that shop, but of the ancient monastery of the the Byzantine church that should be standing in front of them. Nothing in their tour has prepared them for the fact that this ancient site had been burned by arson in August of 2015. The awful blackened walls that are still standing mark a contrast to the lush, environment around them, the green hill leading down to the Sea of Galilee. This is peaceful-looking country, but the country in which it resides is anything but peaceful. It's been a flashpoint for religious extremism for as long as anyone can remember, a magnet for zealots of all kinds. And those that burned this historic treasure of a church seven short months ago left the place in shambles. And they scrawled these words in graffiti graffiti on the burned walls, false idols will be smashed. It's a strange thing to find so much conflict in a land where the words were spoken, peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. But, But it's no stranger than finding yourself with hunger pangs in the exact site that the multitudes were fed. Now, the good news is that where there are tourists, there are opportunists. And so merchants and local people have begun to swarm around the bus offering food and souvenirs for sale. And suddenly, one of the tourists remembers something besides their hungry belly and pulls out a guidebook and begins pointing anxiously and asking a local man, but what about the mosaics? Surely they didn't burn the mosaics. And so fingers begin pointing to the interior of the church, past the charred remains, past the indistinguishable destruction, to an inner sanctuary. And those who have been longing to see this site sigh with relief. Here is the original 5th century, 5th century sanctuary untouched by the fire. The famous mosaic tile floors still intact. It's roped off, so no one will walk on the precious posterity, of course. And so the pilgrims, careful not to drop the snacks that they're now eating on the ancient floor, lean over the ropes and snap a few flash photographs of those tiny pieces broken and gathered to make a picture of what happened on this exact spot. 
it's time to eat. The people are hungry, but where in the world will they find food? The laborers are getting hot as the Middle Eastern sun rises high in the sky. They've worked all morning carrying bricks and raising walls as they've done for several weeks now. It takes time to build a monastery like this by hand. As they work, they glance over their shoulders, occasionally checking to see if the women from the neighboring village have arrived yet with their lunch. Uh, Then first, one of them appears, walking out from the trees in the distance, carrying a basket heavy with food. And, And a cry goes up from the laborers, stop the work. And they climb down from the walls and they find a seat in the shade where they will eat. You don't have to tell them twice to break for lunch. One man doesn't stop, though. He's too intent on his work to take a break just yet. He he isn't high on the walls. He is on his hands and knees in the inner sanctuary. He's shifting tiny fragments, one centimeter this way, one centimeter the other, before slathering them with cement and sticking them into place. His neck and his back ache. But he's used to that. It's an occupational hazard that comes from laying a mosaic tile floor by hand. Occasionally, he he backs up to make sure that the intricate pieces are indeed making the picture that he wants them to make. If he gets it wrong, he has just seconds to pry up that piece before it dries. This cement is strong, but he has no way of knowing that it will last for hundreds of years. Now, unlike the local workers that are up on top of the walls, this artisan has traveled a long way, all the way from his home in Egypt, to work on the intricate floor in this spot. Being himself a believer in the miracle worker, he was honored to be sought out for his gifts to paint the miracle in pieces on the very spot where it had happened. And the irony of his journey wasn't lost on him as he traveled through the desert to get here from Egypt, tracing the steps of the Israelites who hungered and grumbled and ate bread from heaven in the wilderness. Now his trek, of course, was a lot shorter than theirs. Nobody takes 40 years to make this journey anymore. This is, after all, the modern age, the fifth century. When he arrived at the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he was homesick at first, and he found there a small chapel that had been built on that site a hundred years ago, a place where pilgrims came from all around to see this one spot, this stone upon which they said Jesus had placed the bread after he blessed it, and they made it their altar. And so many pilgrims have come and chipped off pieces of that stone already that Reportedly, the master's table of stone has diminished greatly in size. And so this man, finding the spot, a pilgrim himself, begins to work on the floors around the room. He's homesick, and so when he makes these mosaics, he depicts lush greenery and birds gathered at the water's edge. But instead of the waters of Galilee, which are right down the hill, He was depicting the animals and plant life of the Nile. A little shout out to home. Comforting visions for him. And all around him, um, 
a much more complex building than was there before is going up, more intricate and vast than the original small chapel. This time it is a modern 5th century monastery. It'll have rooms for lodging for pilgrims and monks and workshops for a variety of crafts. But the sanctuary where he works will still be the centerpiece at the heart of the place. The altar is built right over the stone that was supposed to be Jesus' table, and people still come to this spot to kneel and remember the miracle that happened there. And so this artisan has saved this spot for last. The picture he will paint right in front of that famous rock. It will depict one last scene much simpler than all of the birds and plants of Egypt. He smiles to himself as he begins that one last picture, the one that will show the results of the miracle. And he smiles as he thinks of the secret message that he's about to embed in that picture, wondering how many people will get it? How many will see what he was trying to convey there? Satisfied with his progress, for now he dusts off his hands and heads out to have lunch with the others. It's time to eat. The people are hungry, but where in the world will they find enough food? The crowd stands on the same spot, the same mountain overlooking the glistening lake, the same bright sun, the same kinds of trees around them, but there are no tour buses. There's no monastery building, no sanctuary, no tile floor on which to stand, just a carpet of green grass beneath their feet. And there are so many feet. <laughs> the people just keep coming and coming, and the disciples know they should be pleased, really, that Jesus is drawing a crowd, but with each arriving group, they get more and more annoyed. This was supposed to be their quiet time with Jesus. This was supposed to be their spot away from the crowds. Jesus had recognized their exhaustion and invited them away to a quiet place. But the thing is, when Jesus shows up, things don't stay quiet for long, not anywhere. And the crowds had figured out where Jesus and his crew were heading, and so they got there first and began filling up the quiet spot with their noise. And now there are so many people that the disciples have lost count. The 12 followers aren't really sure what they thought ministry would be, but this is not it. How much of ministry is just crowd control? Organizing the people into groups, meeting their physical needs, answering all of their complaints. They thought they wanted to draw a crowd, but when the crowd appeared, it just wore them out. And this particular crowd, this one is hungry with needs. And here's the thing about ministry. The crowd will devour you if you give them a chance. The disciples didn't even have time to stop and eat and find food for themselves. And so now they are hungry, and there's hungry people all around them, thousands of them gathering, and no end in sight. They just keep coming. And so the 12 are hoping that Jesus will be just as annoyed as they are. That Jesus will say, enough already and send the crowds home. Or that maybe he'll invite the disciples to sneak away again and find a quieter place. 
But instead, they see that familiar gleam in his eyes, the one where he looks at his people with compassion, where he sees their needs and their hunger and their hurt. They hear him mumbling something about a sheep without a shepherd, and as they see the people milling around on the hill without direction or answers or guidance, they begin to see it too. So here, in these green pastures, beside these still waters, Jesus gathers them to himself like a shepherd would. And he begins to teach them many things. And as they're beginning to be fed with Jesus' teachings, another kind of hunger appears in their eyes. And the disciples see it, and they start to be afraid. And so when they see a chance for a break, they take Jesus aside. It's time to eat, the disciples say. The people are hungry. Where in the world are we going to get enough to feed them? Out in this deserted place. Send them home, Jesus. Just send the people home. You give them something to eat, Jesus says. And they are mystified, confused, perplexed. Is this another one of his riddles? What does he mean, you give them something to eat? The cost of feeding this crowd is far more than Judas has in the reserves, far more than they could earn very quickly, even if they still had their jobs, which they left to follow him. Now, Jesus has called their attention to what they do not have, to the fact that they have nothing. They already knew they had nothing, but Jesus just emphasizes it a little more. He calls them to take an inventory of their nothing. Five barley loaves, two small fish, the food of peasants. It's not enough to even make a meal for the disciples, much less for the thousands that gather around them. And coming up nearly empty, their expressions turn desperate. But Jesus' expression turns to a smile. Good, he seems to say, good. Now that you know how much nothing you have, now we can begin. Because where your nothing runs out is where my everything begins. Have the people sit down, he says. Actually, the word he uses means far more than sit. Have the people recline on the green grass beside the still waters. Recline. Reclining is the position you take for a banquet. Reclining is not the position you take for a snack. It's the position for a feast. When you recline, you know you're about to be served and that you are about to be served something abundant and rich. Have the people recline, Jesus says. And then, and then he takes their little nothing out of their hands and treats it as if he's holding a meal for royalty. He takes those meager barley loaves and those skinny little fish, the meal of, pres- of peasants, and he lifts them in his hands and all four recorded memories of that day say it specifically like this. Jesus took bread, and lifting it, he gave thanks and broke the bread and gave it to the disciples. Later, reclining at another banquet, they will remember this day. Jesus, with bread in his hands, 
giving thanks before breaking it, a moment of abundance and feasting. You give them something to eat, Jesus says again. Only this time, they actually have something to give. This time, it occurs to them, it was never about what they brought at all. It was all about what Jesus had to give to them and through them. And still, passing those meager supplies of bread and fish around the crowd, they wait for it to end. When will it run out? They wait to hear those angry cries of, hey, I didn't get any, he got some, but not me. They wait, but it never comes. When will it run out? Instead, they start to hear these thoughts of incredulous laughter bubble up as the the bread and the fish that Jesus has blessed never run out. As they're first passed from one person to the next, one group to the next, one hundred to the next, and then to a thousand, when will it run out? Before they know it, everyone has eaten and they are stuffed. And the leftovers, the leftovers, 12 full baskets after no one can even eat another bite. They keep wondering, when will it run out? And the truth is, it still hasn't. Right on that hillside, as Isaiah had predicted, years and years ago, a banquet of rich foods, enough to fill the stomachs of all people, signaling the Messiah has come that the ultimate banquet of the Lord is being set before them, that what the people are really hungry for is finally being served up. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John would record Jesus saying that on the very next page after this miracle. Well, he would call it a sign. John never said miracle. He liked to say they were signs, always pointing to something. So right after this sign pointing to the bread of life, the bread of life would say, those who eat my flesh, who drink my blood, abide in me, and I in them. A hungry crowd will devour you if they get the chance. And Jesus has given his miracle He's given his teaching, and he won't stop there. He will give himself. That's what they were hungry for in the first place, wasn't it? Jesus offered himself. He feeds us still with himself. And we come sometimes with empty stomachs, sometimes with empty wallets, empty lives, empty hearts, or homes, but what we long for is to feed on something that we can't digest in an afternoon and be hungry for more. What we long for is a meal that will last, that will reverberate through our lives and ministries and throughout time. You didn't think it was barley they showed up on the mountain for, do you? You didn't think it was barley that would be the eternal bread of life? Whoever eats this bread will live forever, John remembers him saying. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's time to eat. The people are hungry, but it's nowhere in this world that they will find enough to satisfy them. The artist who created the mosaic floor in the church of the multiplication 
near the little town of Tagba on this site, the one who made his own pilgrimage in the fifth century from Egypt. He was much more gifted at art than he was with letters. Some even believe he was illiterate. He may have misspelled his own name when he signed the piece. But his real signature is hidden in the mosaic as it covers the front of the sanctuary. This is the one right in front of the altar, the altar that covers the stone that was Jesus' table. This is the altar that pilgrims back to the 4th century came from all around to see pilgrims and craftsmen, rich and poor alike. And this picture on the floor is of loaves and fishes, just as we would expect. It survived multiple attacks on this site meant to destroy the building in which it sits. This picture is the icon by which this church is known, by which the whole town is known, really. And people who remark at the artist's gifts sometimes wonder in the next breath about his ability to count. If you count them, you'll find two fish there, just like you would expect in the picture, but what about the loaves? There are only four loaves in his picture. Did he make a mistake? If you, in this early church, came forward for communion, you would actually stand on this floor at the altar. You would stand before the table, before the rock where the multiplication happened. And there, right in front of you, on that table, in real life, would be the fifth loaf. The loaf on the altar itself was the loaf you would break for communion that day. It was meant for people starved, coming to look for the bread of life. So whenever anyone in front of this altar lifted and blessed and broke the bread, the miracle was still happening. When did the bread run out? It still hasn't. It is being passed today among God's people, the empty, the lonely, the hungry, and the desperate, who have taken an inventory of our nothing enough to know that we will never have enough, and then ask to feed on Jesus. And then there are those of us that will face a crowd week after week and say to them, I have nothing to give you except what he has given me, his teachings, his miracles, his bread for the hungry and the poor. And then because he wouldn't stop there, I won't either. He finally gave himself 